Okay, beloved, Romans chapter 9, this is actually part 2. We did a part 1 last week in this text. Let me ask you something before we, we read the text, and we'll read some context also, or the, the passages before our particular section this morning, but uh, have you ever heard this before? I'm sure you have. Um, who are you to judge me? You ever heard that? Well, maybe you've said it. <laughs> Uh, or uh, you don't have a right to judge me, or only God can judge me. You know, I, I find it interesting that while people, generally speaking, react quite negatively to being judged, right? Uh, many don't think twice about judging God, or thinking that in some matter he has acted contrary to what is right, or that he has behaved wrongly. Uh, The creature, beloved, that's us, in a sense, uh, points their finger at God, their tiny little pipsqueak finger, points their finger at their creator, and they say, hey, you're not acting as you ought. Or that is to say, God, you're not living up to my standard. Beloved, all that is is just another manifestation of our sin. That's what that is. Let's read the text. We'll begin in verse 10, so we get the kind of the story as we're running here, and we'll read to verse 23. We'll do some review, and then we'll jump into the second uh, point of the outline. Beginning in verse 10, follow along as I read the Apostle Paul. These are his words. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's our text this morning, beloved. Are you ready? Yes? You ready, Justin? You ready? You ready to get into the meat? 
Okay, all right. I'm going to give it to you this morning, okay? All right. He was upset because I stopped in the middle of the sermon last week. But, you know, time constraints, my friend. All right, some review. The doctrine of election or God's sovereign choice or selection of some, of some but not all individuals, to become the blessed recipients of his salvation. A choice, by the way, that has no basis. This is review. No basis in the person themselves or in their actions, real or foreseen, is in part, in part, and I say that because when we get to Romans 10, we're going to get some more explanation from Paul. Remember what I told you, this is a unit, 9 through 11, but election or God's sovereign choice is in part Paul's explanation for why so many of his kinsmen according to the flesh, verse 3, or his fellow Israelites, the Jews, had rejected Jesus as their Messiah or the Christ. Simply stated, beloved, those within the nation of Israel who refused to believe the gospel, and still do to this day, were not chosen by God. They were not and are not the elect of God. They were not the true Israel of God. They were not the true Israel of God. Or as Paul says in verse 6 of this chapter, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. As one writer said, to be a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough. It's not enough. One must be chosen by God. To explain this, Paul draws on examples from the Old Testament of God's electing purposes. But as Paul uses these examples to show that God has always acted according to the principle of election, he also stops and raises and addresses some possible objections to this doctrine, to this teaching. Last week, we looked at the first objection in verse 14. Based on the fact that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau, the twin sons of Isaac, that he showed mercy on the one and not the other, and that his choice was not based on anything that they had done or would do. Based on all of that, one might say that act makes God unjust, or that he acted contrary to what is right. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, strongly rejects that, okay? He strongly rejects that. So if that's your position, just know you stand opposed to the Apostle Paul. He strongly rejects that and then goes on to show from the life of Moses and Pharaoh that God is not only free to show mercy to whomever he wants, but also free to harden whomever he wants. And in both situations, in both, God has done nothing wrong because his freedom to choose is consistent with who he is or his nature. And it is consistent with his divine purposes. So the bottom line is, Paul, 
unlike a lot of people, Paul doesn't determine if God is right or wrong to do what he does based on some human standard or opinion. He does not do that, but rather the standard is nothing less and nothing more than God himself. God. God is the standard, beloved, of what is right and wrong. So then, listen, this is all review, God then is never wrong or acting contrary to what is right when he is simply being faithful to who he is or to his purposes. One writer says this, it is important to build one's theology. You know that word? Theology. So that's the study of God, our understanding of God. It is important to build our understanding of God not on personal perceptions of what ought to be, but upon the biblical revelation of the character and purpose of God. To fault God for showing mercy to some while hardening others is to require that he conform to our fallible, you know that word, just imperfect, our imperfect and arbitrary concept of justice. and con- Yeah, arbitrary concept of justice. Arbitrary. That means based on our personal feelings. That is not how we should determine who God is. You know how we determine who God is? Hopefully. Right, the word. He tells us who he is, and then... We are responsible to believe it, even if it's tough. Our part is just to believe, not to say, hey, I don't like that one. I think I'll rewrite God. And yet that's what people do all the time. They rewrite God. Another writer says, most of our problems, most of our problems concerning these things arise and seem insoluble or impossible to solve because our image of God is distorted. You know why our image of God is distorted, beloved? Because it doesn't come from the Scriptures many times. It comes from other places that are not authoritative, that are not true. It comes from our own messed up mind that hasn't been washed by the pure Word of God. It comes from friends and neighbors who know nothing about God. It comes from Hollywood of all places. I could go on and on about this, beloved, about, about our distorted image of God. But that's why when we come to particular doctrines in the Bible, I think many times it's why we, we resist because our thinking of who God is doesn't align all of a sudden with what we're hearing. So what should we do? Repent! That's what the Christian life is all about. We repent of false thinking. Just like we repent of bad behavior, we should repent of bad thinking and align that thinking with what the Word of God really says. So, if you did not hear last week's message, I would encourage you, that's all review, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, but we must move on. We will consider now the second objection to Paul's teaching of election so that we must understand, or that we will understand, why both objections are not valid. Both are not valid. Last week, we just looked at the first one. God is unjust in his act of choosing. This week, God is unjust to find fault. Both are flat out wrong. But both are objections that Paul raises and then addresses. 
Look back at verse 19. Look back at verse 19. Paul says there, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Okay, so here it is in the context. If, as it is in the case of Pharaoh, which you just talked about, God hardens the heart of whomever he wills, whomever he chooses, according to his divine purposes, then how can God justly Blame someone he hardens for doing what they do, since obviously no one can resist his will. Someone might say it like this, it is wrong of God to find fault if he himself is the cause of the person's behavior. You get it? You get it? One writer says this, if God acts unilaterally, Hey, do you remember that word? When I was reading this quote, immediately something came to my mind, unilaterally. Have you heard that word before, unilaterally? Right? Because, again, uh, I'm not getting political on you, but when our current president came in, one of the things that he was critical of is our unilateral approach to doing things, meaning that we would just determine as the sovereign United States of America that we were going to go do something like, you know, attack a country or something of that nature. And he thought that that was wrong. He thought that we should build a coalition. You remember all that stuff? So I'm not making any comment concerning whether that's good or bad. I'm just, it made me think of that, that we should build a coalition. We shouldn't go it alone. We should, we should make sure we get permission from everyone else. Okay? That is not how God acts. Now, whether government should do that, that's a whole other discussion, all right? That is not how God acts. He doesn't build a coalition. He acts unilaterally. He doesn't ask for permission. Okay. If God acts unilaterally, and he does, according to his own will and purpose, can I do this? No, he doesn't ask that question. Does this not remove all basis for judgment since man is not in a position to resist his divine will? Why then should man be blamed? Do you see the the situation, the difficulty here? Now, two things because I'm just going to walk you through this, because I told you this last week, in both cases, to both objections, the answer Paul gives may not be the one you were looking for. But it's the answer he gives. It's the inspired word of God, so I can say it is the answer God gives. First, two, two things. First, and we'll see, uh, as we'll see, Listen, Paul doesn't say, concerning his answer, we're going to look at it, but I'm just going to tell you now, he doesn't say that he has somehow been misunderstood or that he does not agree with the premise of the objection. What is that? That God freely chooses to harden people and yet still finds fault in them. Even though no one can resist his will. He, you're going to see, and we just read it, he doesn't disagree with any of that. He doesn't back away from this. Whoa, whoa, you got me wrong, you got me wrong. No. Rather, what Paul addresses, listen, what he addresses and rejects is the assertion that somehow that truth makes God unjust. That's the issue. That's what Paul deals with. 
Second, concerning Paul's answer to this objection, I thought this was helpful to me. One writer says this, Paul is not here denying the validity of that kind of questioning of God which arises from sincere desire to understand God's ways and an honest willingness to accept whatever answer God might give. That's not what Paul's dealing with here. Rather, it is the attitude of the creature presuming to judge the ways of the Creator to answer back that Paul implicitly rebukes. Another one says this, concerning this line of reasoning, Paul is not censuring censuring someone who asks sincerely perplexed questions, but rather someone who quarrels with God, who talks back or answers back. Such a person manifests, shows a reprehensible spirit of rebellion against God, a refusal to let God be God and acknowledge his or her true status as creature and sinner. You with me? So all that to say this, hey, it's okay to have questions about God, beloved. It's okay. It's okay to even ask those questions. It's the attitude that Paul's addressing here. This is not someone just seeking information or trying to understand exactly who God is and why he does what he does. That's reasonable. I still have questions. Huh? Have you got all your questions answered, by the way? If you have, you don't ask enough questions. (laughs) I still have questions. Uh, But it's a different approach. This is a different type of attitude. This is one who speaks back to God. He doesn't like what God has done. He doesn't like how he has acted. Now let's look back at Paul's answer to this objection that God is unjustifying fault. Beginning in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's a good question, Paul. Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Commenting on this passage, (laughs) you'll appreciate this, I think. One pastor says this, commenting on that. Oh, man, these are his words. Who art thou that repliest against God? You with your little infinitesimal puny pea brain. You see where he's going. Who are you to stand up and say, well, God, this doesn't seem fair. Who are you with your little tiny thimble full of information? You know what thimbles are, right? Any of you sewers? Little things, they, okay, they're really tiny. Um, you could have just said thimble. They're tiny. Full of information against the vastness of an eternal mind as big as the endless universe. Who are you? Who do you think you are? I've had some of these conversations when my kids were younger. <laughs> Have you had any of those? Are you serious? No way, you know, or we have them privately afterwards. I don't who do they think they are, babe? I don't know. You know, and then the way you used to answer, I remember this is very common. I brought you into this world. I will take you out of it as a way of reminding them that, you know, I made you and I can unmake you. But 
Not really, but in the sense, in one sense, God is absolutely that, right? All right, now Paul doesn't say, Paul doesn't say all that exactly, all right? But Paul is certainly emphasizing in these verses the great gulf that exists between human beings and God. It's massive, beloved. I am not God. You are not God. You're not even close. Made in his image, yes. But still a great gulf exists between us and God. We are the created. He's creator. He is infinite. We are finite. He is absolutely holy. We are washed in sin. And in light of what Paul says, it should be clear to us that we are certainly, because of those things, in no position whatsoever to talk back to God or accuse Him of wrongdoing. Remember, beloved, we're not talking about asking sincere questions. This is a different attitude here. And to make this point, Paul uses an illustration that was repeatedly used in the Old Testament many times, and was very familiar to his readers. And that is the picture of the potter and the clay. I just thought I'd show you a picture because we're so modern that maybe, of course, we watch movies, and so maybe we saw someone doing this, like Patrick Swayze or something in Ghost. Or... <laughs> Please don't let that movie run through your head at this point. It's going to ruin... Um... Yeah, shouldn't have said that, but... This is, uh, yeah, this is very, this would have been very common. It's still done today, but very common in Palestine and in that day. And so uh, someone forming a vessel or a utensil out of clay with their own hands, okay? So he uses that. So in verse 20, or the last part of verse 20, Paul asks this, Will what is molded say to its molder, <laughs> Why have you made me like this? Well, <laughs> it would be entirely absurd and inappropriate if it did. I mean, the thing molded, beloved, is in no position to be questioning the decisions of the potter. Is it? Is it in any position to do that? Beloved, here's the, here's the point. It is just as inappropriate and unreasonable for a vase to talk back to its molder or the potter for what he has chosen to do with his clay as it is for us as sinful human beings to talk back to God or denounce him in his decisions concerning what he does with us. That's the point. One writer says this, And does the clay rise up and say, Why hast thou made me thus? It's an absurdity. Man is as far from comprehending the infinite mind of God as clay is from comprehending the mind of the potter. Be satisfied. Here it is again. I've said this phrase many times. To let God be God. Right? It's a humbling position. Let him be who he is. Be satisfied that God is righteous, that he is holy, that he is just, loving, compassionate, merciful, and don't bring God to trial at your court and act like the prosecution and the judge. Don't do it, beloved. 
That's one you will not win. One writer says, to liken humans to pottery, which is what Paul does, is to emphasize the disparity between us and God. Disparity is lack of equality, the unlikeness, the big gap. That's what Paul's doing. Pottery. You know, we're not compared to a lot of nice things in the Scriptures. We really aren't. Sheep. You ever do a study on sheep? They are pathetic animals. And then pottery. Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Can I just say something there real quick? This honorable, dishonorable, just in the context of, of that actually happening. So in a home, in a, in a home, they would make some items. So there might be wonderful dishes that would be used to honor guests and, and, and celebrate and things of this nature. And then there would be other items that were used or made by the potter to do things that might be more dishonorable, such as taking out the trash or a trash container or a refuse container or something of that nature. So in any home, there would be items made by the potter, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use, okay? With me? The point here is just as the potter has the right to make for his use from the same lump of his clay, whatever type of vessel he chooses, so God certainly has the same right over his creation. That's the point. That's the point. Now I want to point out a few things. First, while the potter chooses from his same lump of clay to make one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, just notice that both have a use. Did you see that? In this, I'm not making that up, it's there. Both have a use. Both, listen, both ultimately serve the purposes of the potter. Or in our case, God. God. Hold on to that thought, okay? Second, the one lump of clay that God works with should be understood as the lump of sinful humanity. As the lump of sinful humanity. So why do I point that out? Well, God doesn't take innocent, righteous clay and then make it evil or unrighteous and then condemn it or find fault with it. That would be very strange. Rather, the entire lump of clay is sinful, and God does what he wants with that lump. You with me so far? We're that lump, beloved. See, we know that. There are none righteous, no, not one. We've already covered that in Romans, right? That's the lump we're talking about, the lump of sinful humanity. And to follow that up, I want to add something here. We talked a little bit about this last week, the hardening of the heart, but just to make sure we're understanding things clearly as we try to figure out all that's being said here, I want to read you this concerning God's hardening. One writer says this, God's hardening is an act directed against human beings who are already in rebellion against God's righteous rule. God's hardening does not then cause spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. It simply maintains people in the state of sin that already characterizes them. It is imperative that we maintain side by side the complementary truth that first, God hardens whomever 
he chooses. And second, human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Thus, God's bestowing of mercy and his hardening are not equivalent acts. God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already by their sin deserved condemnation. Everyone deserves condemnation, beloved, but some receive mercy. Some receive God's justice. So he reserves the right then to do God with already sinful creatures that which his own will desires. Another writer says this, It is nowhere suggested in the Scriptures, that is, that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but rather that He has the right to deal with sinful beings according to His good pleasure, either to pardon or to punish. These are kind of heavy things, guys. These are heavy things, but things that we need to, we need to work through and things that Paul is dealing with here. Third, Paul continues his illustration of the potter and the clay in the verses that follow. He continues this illustration when he refers to vessels of wrath, vessels of wrath in verse 22, or those destined for destruction, and vessels of mercy in verse 23, or those destined for salvation. It's a continuation of his analogy here, of the potter and the clay. So what is the point? The point is this, that God has the right to make or mold from the same mass of sinful, fallen humanity, from the same lump of rebels, different kinds of vessels. Some are vessels destined to inherit salvation, vessels of mercy. And some are vessels destined for condemnation or destruction, vessels of wrath. Vessels of wrath. One writer says this, Paul's emphasis in this paragraph is that as the potter has the right to shape his clay into vessels for different purposes, so God has the right to deal with fallen humanity according to both his wrath and mercy, as Paul has argued in verses 10 through 18. Now look at verses 22 and 23. Here, we're going to see Paul apply his answer to the objection in a way that gives us insight really into the amazing ways of God, amazing ways of God. Read it along as I read it. Just follow along with me. Verse 22, Paul says, after saying all that, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Beloved, what we find in these verses are three reasons that summarize God's purpose in bearing patiently with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 
Before we look at those reasons, I want to deal quickly with this phrase that troubles a lot of people, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Listen, some uh, point out, even Bible teachers, scholars, they point out that the text doesn't tell us who it is, there anyway, that prepares vessels for destruction. And so they insist that God cannot be the one responsible for this preparation. Okay? But listen, I don't think the context allows that understanding. Here's the context. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. It's written in this context. Pharaoh, whom God raised up and hardened that God might reveal his power. Same kind of phrasing and language that Paul's using here, so that his name would be proclaimed throughout the world. And then we have the context of the action of the potter making out of the same lump one vessel for one use and one for another. And when you take it in light of that context, it makes it clear to me and other Bible teachers that it is God who prepares vessels for destruction. Now, as I've already said, this does not in any way mean that God makes men sinful. He doesn't make men sinful. But it does show that God is sovereign over them and does, according to his will, use them as he sees fit to achieve his divine purpose. That's it. He uses them as he sees fit. What are you going to say, beloved? What am I going to say to God? I don't like the way you're using me. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? All of us deserve condemnation, beloved. Does God not have the right to do what he wants with the same lump of sinful clay? All right. Totally lost my place. So, uh, oh, one writer says this. Paul considers the vessels that popped up there. The guy's really tracking with me today. Good, day, good job, John, but I'm all over the place. Paul, Paul considers the vessels on whom God's wrath rests as prepared by God himself for eternal condemnation. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Is it, again, it doesn't... Let's keep moving on. I mean, whether you're uncomfortable or not, I told you in the beginning. Yeah, this is uncomfortable. So, that doesn't mean it's not true. Now, why does God do such things and patiently tolerate their sin? Well, first off, it's going to get more uncomfortable now. According to the text, it is because of God's desire to show his wrath. Is it there in the text? Is that what it says? Am I making this up? I'm not making it up. It's his desire to show his wrath. You know what his wrath is? It's his holy hate for sin. which is hard for us to even really get our minds around because we are swimming in it. And this wrath will be put on full display, my friends, at the final judgment of sinners. Uh, and, and again, maybe you don't feel comfortable with that. I don't feel comfortable with that either. But... God desires to show his wrath 
I think maybe on one level, when we think of wrath, we probably think of human wrath. And so again, that would be a mistake, because often human wrath is, often, I would say almost always, is mixed in with some level of degree of sin. So I might think of the wrath of my father, usually that's quickly people think of their dad or something, because usually he's the one flipping out. Um, I mean, it's not always true. Moms do it too. I don't, I don't want to, I'm an equal opportunity uh, offender. Um, but we might think of that, or we think of the wrath of a government that's uh, evil, and we think of those things. Uh, let me just say this, God's wrath is perfectly holy. It's perfectly righteous. It's perfectly just. He is a God of wrath. See, where do you, I don't, I don't know, this is what I've been my experience. Less and less do I hear any kind of conversations about this. Uh, God is love. Is that true, beloved? You bet. I'm so glad he is. That same God who is love is wrath. He is wrath. And this is what I mean by redefining God. Redefining God. We, so people don't like that. Well, rebels don't like that. They don't want to hear about wrath against their sin. They don't like that. So they just remove that from the equation when they consider God. Oh, no, not my God. He's not a God of wrath. He wouldn't do such things. He wouldn't wipe out sinners. He wouldn't torture them forever. In a place called hell, that's crazy. No, that's just what the Bible says. That's what it is, which makes it true. See what I'm saying? So they water God down. You know, it's like when you take a, a drink of something that's really strong, maybe strong lemonade or something like that. You're like, this is too strong. You pour more water and you dilute it. They dilute God. He's too strong for them. They just can't swallow that God. But he's a God of wrath, beloved. I was just thinking about this today. I mean, I think about it all the time, and I've been thinking about it throughout the week, but it's like they take all this, they domesticate God. That's what we do as sinners. We domesticate God. Uh, God is a lion, and that's not even good enough. But when I think about a lion, lions can be, I was even thinking about it, lions can be very tender with their own, right? Loving, kind, but watch out. They have wrath, and they unleash it, and they'll rip an animal apart and not even think twice. They have that type of power, and they exercise it. But we want, you know, God to be a little puppy. And that's what I'm afraid many have done with the one true God. They have brought him down. They have watered him down. They have made him so comfortable. I've said this before, beloved. If you're really comfortable with God then that's not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures should make you a little uncomfortable. He's terrifying. He is terrifying. He is all-powerful. He is the sovereign king. They even do this with Jesus. I was thinking about Jesus, right? God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. So what is emphasized about Jesus Christ in our modern-day Christianity? Oh, he's so... He's such a nice guy. 
He's such a nice guy. He's just, you know, he came to earth and he's like, he's just healing everyone and feeding people who don't have any food to eat. And he always has the children on his lap. And he's always telling a good joke or they told a good joke because he's always laughing. He's always laughing. So I go to the scriptures and then I read about this Jesus. Have you read the book of Revelation? Have you read the last book of the Bible that tells us how everything ends? Have you read about the slaughter of humanity that takes place in the judgment? Do you know who leads that slaughter? Yeah, with a sword. You see what I'm saying? I'm not yelling at you guys. I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because people have a, a poor conception of who Jesus Christ really is. He's Lord, beloved. Amen. So when we talk about being Lord, he's not my buddy. He's not my buddy. He's not my homeboy. He's Lord. That means something. Absolute sovereign. And he exercises that sovereignty. He crushes and will crush his enemies. Rebels who refuse to bow their heart to him. That's Jesus. Oh, he loves, beloved. Oh, he loves but don't forget the rest of what he does. And so wrath, like God's other attributes, wrath is an aspect of God's character. It in part, beloved, defines who God is. And God, get this, desires to put himself on display for his own glory, for his own honor. Now, again, I've said this. When you and I desire to put ourselves on display, it's usually sinful, and I keep saying usually. I should just say all the time. When we put our, because we are sinful beings. And so look at me. No one should be looking at you. But when God puts himself on display, it is right. It is good. He should do that. He must do that. He's the glorious one, the holy one. There's nothing wrong when God puts himself on display. In fact, if he didn't put himself on display, something would be wrong. And so, for his own honor, he does this. Now, look at what this one writer says. I found this interesting. This might uh, cause your mind to think some more about some th- certain things. He says this, God wants to display his wrath. Yes, he does. Why? Because he wants to reveal himself, and that is part of himself. You ready? The entrance of sin into the world was necessary so that God could manifest his wrath and his judgment and his holy anger, and his vengeance, and his justice. Because that is as much an element of God's nature as is any other thing in his nature. Had there been no sin, he couldn't have displayed his wrath against sin. And we wouldn't have known that element of him and he wouldn't have put himself on display. And there would have been a part of God lost to the display. Beloved, that's, that's hard. That's our God. Second, second, why does he bear patiently with the vessels of wrath, prepare for destruction? One, he wants to display his wrath. Second, he desires to make his power known. 
His power, beloved, will be manifested to even a greater degree when he finally punishes all those who have rebelled against him. When God pours out his wrath in full on those who have stored up wrath for themselves by refusing to bow their heart to Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, to those who refused Jesus as Messiah, who refused the gospel that Paul was preaching. He says, you are storing up for yourselves wrath. Thirdly, thirdly, look at verse 23. Why does, he, why does he patiently tolerate these things? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Follow me, beloved. This is incredible. God has prepared beforehand. He has predestined. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We've already gone over that. He has predestined. He has decided in eternity past to bestow his mercy on certain individuals whom he, according to his sovereign plan and purpose, has chosen to save. (laughs) And God could have certainly executed his sentence of condemnation against the human race at any time. But listen, by patiently waiting, by enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, God is able to extend his mercy to all the undeserving sinners that he has chosen for salvation. And in the end, when his holy wrath against unbelievers is unleashed in contrast to that wrath, a wrath, by the way, that grows in intensity and force with every passing day. His mercy, in contrast to that, that wrath, His mercy toward the elect, toward us who are saved, will appear brighter than the sun. The riches of his glory in sovereignly saving sinners will be put on display in all of its fullness for us to behold. You understand? You understand? I mean, that, these analogies all fail miserably because it's, 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 I'm speaking in human ways, but it's like dad comes home, two boys, his sons. They both, they both deserve a beating. By that I mean appropriate discipline. <laughs> it's sad I even have to qualify everything, but, but okay, appropriate discipline. And <laughs> for whatever reason... This one, God determines that Billy is going to get mercy today. He's going to get mercy. But his brother, what should be his name? Two? Timmy. 
Timmy's not going to get mercy. Uh, Timmy's not going to get mercy. Timmy's going to get what he deserves. He's going to get dad's wrath. He deserves every bit of it. And as that wrath is being poured out on Timmy, was this guy's name Billy? I can't remember. These are bad to do on the fly. Billy, Billy realizes just how good dad's mercy is. Because he deserved every bit of that. He deserved every bit of that. And he didn't get it. One writer says this. In the face of the accusation that his, that's Paul's, stress on the initiative of God in determining who would be his people turns God into an unjust tyrant. In the face of that, Paul retreats not one step. He doesn't back away. On the contrary, he goes on the offensive and strengthens his teaching about the unconstrained freedom of God in making choices that determine people's lives, our lives. The choices he is talking about have to do with eternal destinies, beloved. This text then gives further support to the doctrine of unconditional election. God saves some, not because they deserved it, not because of their faith that he foresaw. It's because he chooses to show his mercy. Others he does not save. On those he pours out or will pour out his wrath. Christian, have you ever wondered why among so much unbelief, right, in the world, among so much unbelief, have you ever wondered this? Have you wondered why you chose Christ? Have you wondered why the gospel at some point in your life not only made sense to you, but you desired it? Have you ever wondered that? Huh? All right. Listen closely. If you are a Christian, it isn't because you are smarter or wiser than your unbelieving neighbor. It isn't that. Did you think it was that? I mean, that would make sense to some degree, right? I mean, it's a, it's a smart decision to bow your heart and knee before the almighty sovereign Lord, who, if you don't, is going to crush you. So, I mean, logically, that makes sense. But that isn't it. That isn't it. There's some smart people who reject Jesus Christ. Huh? They're not dumb. It has nothing to do with your intelligence level. It's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. And it isn't because you are more righteous than your family member who refuses to embrace the Lord. Did you maybe think it was that? Well, they're just, look at them. Oh, look at them. I mean, no wonder they reject Christ. But obviously, I mean, maybe you wouldn't say it this way, or, but ultimately that's where it goes if you're thinking along those lines. I just must have some something about me, some righteousness in me that responds to righteousness. And I saw that righteous one, and immediately, obviously, my, my, my family member, they just aren't where I am. I mean, it's not that, because the Bible's clear. There are none righteous, no, not one. You want to talk about degrees of unrighteousness? Go ahead, but you're all unrighteous, and so am I before the Lord. I don't have any inherent righteousness. 
You know why? You know why? Do you know why you chose Christ? Do you know why the gospel made sense to you? Do you know why you you bowed your heart to him? It's because you're a vessel of mercy. You're a vessel of mercy if you've done that, which God prepared beforehand for his glory. As Christians, we have been made and will always remain totally reliant on God's mercy, on his mercy. Is that humbling, beloved? It is. It should be. I think we have some arrogant Christians because they don't understand their salvation. Some haughty Christians. You know what I'm talking about. I think they don't understand their salvation or they've forgotten. The truth of our salvation is humbling, beloved. It is humbling. And this truth should motivate and inspire you to truly live for the Lord. For the Lord, beloved. The one, hear me, the one who determined to rescue you from his wrath. who freely chose according to his own divine pleasure and purpose, who freely chose to make you, if you're one of his children today, to make you a vessel of his mercy. That's the God who saved you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We are humbled, Father, or at least we should be. Those of us who who can call you, Father, because we have been made your children through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who went to a cross to die on our behalf. We call you, Father, and, and we can embrace you because you, you chose us to be your children. Father, very humbling. If it were not for that sovereign choice, if it were not for that divine initiative, if it were not for you, God, if it were not for your willingness to show mercy on some of that that lump of clay, that sinful humanity, if it were not for that, none of us, none of us would be saved. We're rebels at heart. We're born sinners. If it were not for your mercy. So for that, God, we, we bow our heads and we give you thanks now and, and always. By that, Father, we we are truly humbled. We live in your mercy. We are grateful, so grateful for it. Father, help us. Help us to reflect that by the lives that we live. Help this understanding to impact what we do with, with our lives. 
we have been redeemed. Redeemed by you. We didn't save ourselves. We couldn't have saved ourselves. We didn't, we wouldn't even have gone after you. We didn't do that. We were running from you and you and your sovereign way. True us to yourself. Your vessels of mercy. You opened our eyes. You unstopped our ears. You gave us a new heart that we might respond in saving faith to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so grateful. We're so thankful. Father, help us to be faithful now to continue to proclaim this gospel message. Father, we don't know who the vessels of mercy are. We don't know who you have sovereignly chosen to be your own. And you don't tell us. Rather, you tell us this, that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, you save sinners. That's how you do it. May we be faithful as those who have been made recipients of your mercy. May we be faithful to talk to others and proclaim that same mercy to others, trusting that you, through that, will fulfill your divine purposes just as you have planned. Thank you for this message, Father, for the, the words that the Apostle Paul wrote that you, you made sure that to be recorded, Father, help us to embrace it for all that it is. In Jesus' name, amen.